turn to the book of Romans, please. The book of Romans. We're in chapter 12. For those of you who are visiting with us, we are going through the book of Romans. We've been in the book of Romans for, we've had some delays at times, but we've been in there for about a year and a half. And uh, we're going to get through it. I promise you, we will get through it. Romans chapter 12, fix your eyes upon verse 3 and we'll read that in just a moment. Part of our American culture is the prevalence of superheroes. We have superheroes everywhere. We have them in movies. We have them in stories. We, we call people superheroes when they do super deeds. In other words, we all have our favorites. One of mine is Spider-Man. In 2002, when Spider-Man came out, produced by Sam Raimi, directed by him, and that line in the movie has become iconic. And most of us have heard this line. It's from Uncle Ben. He says to Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. Now, you all have heard that, right? It wasn't just Spider-Man. In fact, Spider-Man was introduced in August 1962. I didn't know if you knew this, but a little history is 1962 in the comic book Amazing Fantasy. The guiding principle of Spider-Man's actions was formulated in the original story, but it was expressed in this caption, but it wasn't spoken by Uncle Ben. It wasn't spoken by the main character, Peter Parker. Instead, this last frame of this comic book has this omniscient narrative voice. And the, and the frame said something like this. And a lean, silent figure slowly fades into the gathering darkness, aware at last that in this world, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. Sounds pretty cool, right? You know? Now, what we need to understand is that he didn't make this up. Sam Raimi didn't make this up in this writing of this. In 1748, this came out of Voltaire's writings. Uh, I'm sorry, in 1778, this is where it was in the 48th volume that he had. He used those same words. In 1817, William Lamb, a member of British Parliament, said the same thing. He said the possession of great power necessarily implies great responsibility. Ulysses S. Grant said the same thing. In positions of great responsibility, everyone should do his duty to the best of his ability. William McKinley, one of our presidents, said the same thing. He says, we have great responsibilities. In 1906, Winston Churchill, then undersecretary of the colonial office, said, where there is great power, there is great responsibility. Theodore Roosevelt said the same thing. Responsibility should go with great power. In 1945, State of the Union, Franklin D. Roosevelt said this, in a democratic world as in a democratic nation, power must be linked with responsibility. But in 1948, in the comic book, Superman comes to earth. The very first one who said this was his foster father, Mr. Kent, he said, 
Because of these great powers, son, your speed, your strength, your x-ray vision, your super sensitive hearing, you have a great responsibility. So this phrase has been around a long time. And in fact, folks, if you really want to see where it really started, Luke 12 verse 48 says this, For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In other words, what you've been given, there is a great responsibility to use that which you've been given. So we're going to look at these few verses over the next two weeks. And what I want to change it to is this, the saying to, with great gifts come great responsibility. And we're beginning in chapter 12. If you look in verse 3, we're going to get through the first part of this this week and finish up dealing with the gifts that Paul speaks of in verses 5 through 8. So, let's read it together. It says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So when we look at these first few verses, Paul is speaking from the grace of apostleship. This is what he's saying. This is the grace that has been given to me in chapter 1. He's acknowledging the source of his authority. He didn't earn the position that he was in. He didn't earn apostleship, nor did he give it to himself. This was bestowed upon him by God. It was given to him by grace. In the same way, we don't earn our position of righteousness either. We don't earn our position of standing, right standing before God. It is given, for he does say in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. Paul was transformed and graced by God. He was gifted by God. And now he speaks from that position, a position that is given to him by God. So this is what he's all about, is saying this is all because of God. Now in continuing this thought from verse 2, which he tells us to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is very important to the Christian, we see the thought that the first action of a renewed mind is sober thinking. Notice what he says in this. Let each one, it says, not but think with sober judgment. He said not to think more highly, but to think soberly. You're using the mind in this thinking thing. Paul knows that he should never exalt himself to a superior uh, superior status in his mind. In fact, 
You remember what Paul says about himself, 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Some of your translations say, who am I? Who am I? I'm the chiefest of all sinners. This is how Paul thought of himself. Don't be high-minded. Now, this is a smackdown, folks. This is a Will Smith slap in the face to the apostles of self-esteem. The self-esteem movement occurred in the 1980s, if you have lived that long or come through that. And folks, I believe it is still a false gospel. The strongest purveyor of that kind of thinking of this unbiblical teaching was Robert Schuller. If you've ever read anything about him, he was a Dutch Reformed ministry who pastored the Crystal Cathedral in California. Here's what he said in the 80s. Self-esteem is pride in being a human being. Self-esteem is feeling good about oneself because one has been working hard and well. And he also wrote in his book on self-esteem, A New Reformation. He said, the worst sin a person can commit is to say, I am unworthy. The worst sin that you can commit is to say that you are unworthy. Interesting. And so from the 1980s, our culture put so much emphasis on building someone's self-esteem as being first and foremost an attainment that it's really turned even education on its head. I was looking this up and I found out, you know, they do testing throughout the world about different skills and different levels that, are peop that people are on. And I found that Korean students scored tremendously high in math skills. Many of them were number one. But when they talked with them and surveyed them, they had no re self-regard or self-esteem as one of the components of learning math. In fact, they thought themselves as not even very skilled and equipped to do math. Yet they, in many cases, were number one. On the other hand, American students scored 37th among the nations in math skills. But when asked were they good at math, guess what? They were number one. They were number one throughout the whole world thinking they had great math skills because they were asked questions based on their self-esteem. They were confident, but their scores and their tests were awful. But folks, this is the same thing that's happened with Christianity. We've turned Christianity on its head. The largest church in North America espouses this same non-gospel because its pastor says that Schuler is one of his famous theologians and mentors. The largest church in North America. And do you know that Schuler explicitly denies that there is such thing as original sin? Schuler stated Adam's sin should not be charged to his children. He says that the doctrine of sin is the reason why Christians have behaved so badly for the past 2,000 years. Well, yeah, sin is a reason that people behave badly. But he believes 
that restoring the esteem of individuals is the greatest act that can be accomplished. He believes instead of original sin, everybody is born with a negative self-image. It's not sin. It's a negative self-image. You come out of the womb looking at your mommy and daddy and say, I'm just a terrible child. Right? No. He believed that this negative self-image must be overcome and that Christ did not come to die for unworthy people. Christ came to die for worthy people and to restore to them that wonderful divine image that they lost in the fall. Romans 5 negates that kind of teaching. Very quickly it says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Not in that we had a negative self-image, Christ died for us. But while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So how should we then think? I want you to think about this. It says, sober judgment. Sober-mindedly. What does that mean? It means thinking realistically. It means that you're thinking sanely. It means that you're stable, that you are not intoxicated. One of the Greek words that's used for sober-minded, to be sober-minded means not to be intoxicated. It's not to lose your brains, not to think, not to take them out. And goodness gracious, some of us Christians take our brains out like they're bubble gum, and when we hear things, we stick them underneath the pew and don't really discern and use reason. That's not being stable-minded. That's not being sober-minded. God calls us to think. That's why he tells us to renew our minds. It also means to think logically, to think reasonably. So use sober judgment as he is saying. Joe Rigney, uh, the president of Bethlehem College and Seminary, gave a sermon in chapel to the college students there, and he asked them to be sober-minded. From the teachings of 1 Peter This is what he stated. It has three ingredients. Clarity of mind. Stability of soul. Readiness for action. 1 Peter 1.3 Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In that context, the verses before, it says, you are going to suffer. For the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to have trials. So how do we set our minds? Prepare them for action. Prepare them. Be sober-minded of sober judgment. It's not because you're out there doing something wrong. Think God may bring these things into your life to test your faith so that you can grow thereby. Think reasonably. Think logically on those things. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Again, in chapter 4, as in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, it's talking about fiery trials that are going to come among you. So he's saying, be self-controlled. Understand these things. Don't go off on people. You're going to have trials. Be sober-minded. Be stable. And pray with stability. 
Now, what does that mean? Listen to what he says. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Why? Because when we come to God to pray and to ask him for things, we don't come complaining. We don't come just bemoaning everything that has befallen us. We don't come and just have some crazy, crazy prayers, you know, and screaming out to God about how awful this thing is. He's saying, no, be sober-minded. Think reasonably about these things. Pray reasonably about these things. Be stable for the sake of your prayers. And then 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In other words, be alert. Be clear. Be understanding of the ways of Satan. Tells us in the scriptures, we are not... We are not uh, unaware of the ways of Satan and the demonic forces. We have to be sober-minded, clear. We have to understand and be reasonable about who the enemy is. That's what he's saying. That is someone that is being sober-minded. Now, notice what Paul says. He didn't say somber-minded, Somber-minded. You don't have to walk around feeling somber, feeling terrible all the time. And walk around saying, oh, oh, I'm just a miserable, miserable, miserable sinner. Now, sin will raise its head, but you are not under the dominion and the power of sin any longer if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's what he said in Romans chapter 6. It's dead. It's gone. We understand it. It doesn't have power over us. So therefore, I must be clear that while I am still susceptible to the power of sin, it will not have dominion over me. I must be reasonable about that. That is sober judgment. However, I want us to understand being reasonable, being stable in soul, we have to now replace this self-image thing with something that is a little bit more godly. We have to replace it with what I call a godly identity. A godly identity. It's totally different than saying to somebody and some young child, you can be anything that you want to be. If y'all think about that long and hard, knowing some of your children and knowing some of my children... And knowing my grandkids, that's a little unreasonable. That's a little unreasonable. Now, the point is, what I want them to help my grandchildren, my children, everybody to know is what their identity is in Christ. If you're going to think with a sober mind, think about your identity in Christ. Professor David Inglesma uh, gives a great description of how we are to think. And here's what he says. As a believer... I may and must know myself to be chosen by God, therefore precious to God. In other words, God has loved me from eternity. Did you deserve it? Absolutely not. But did he do that and choose that anyway? Yes, he did. So you have been loved before eternity if you are chosen by God. Second, as a believer, I must and need to know myself as redeemed, not with silver, not with gold, but with the precious blood of God's own Son in the flesh. Therefore, what am I and what is my identity? 
Because I have been chosen, I am also precious to the Lord Jesus Christ. As a believer, I must know that I am regenerated and I am indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, I am a new creation. The old has passed away. All things have been made new. I possess in my life the risen life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says that you are the temple of God where the Holy Spirit dwells. Now, we're going to get into this next week, talking about the gifts of the Spirit. We're not talking about the gift of the Spirit of God. That's what you get when you are converted, when you are regenerated, you are given the Spirit of God. But we're going to talk about the gifts that God gives us while this gifting calls for great responsibility. But one of the things, the responsibility that you have today The gifts that you've been given is exactly what I've been describing. You're regenerated. You're chosen. You're precious. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're a new creation. You are justified by faith. Therefore, you are acceptable to God and accepted of God. You are not guilty any longer. You are no longer under condemnation. You are not worthy of hell now because you have been made righteous. In the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your identity. Fifthly, as a believer, you've been adopted. And therefore, you are an adopted child of God. A son of God. A son of heaven. A son of earth. An heir of all things. You are no longer a child of the devil. Now, you may act like it at times, but you are no longer a child of the devil. You ever been called a little devil? I guess y'all didn't have grandparents like I had grandparents, right? I was one of those favorite sayings when I would mess up. They'd look at me, my granny would look at me and say, you little devil. You know? I am not a child of the devil. I am a child of the king. And so are you. This is the gift that you've been given. As a believer, you're sanctified. And in fact, you are spotless in the eyes of God. And your walk and your life and everything that you do has been blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Seventh thing, as a believer, you're destined for glory. Your soul, but also your body. You see, here's an interesting thing. A good identity extends to the body as well as to the soul. I know that God has sovereignty over my life. I hope you know that as well. God has sovereignty over your life in all circumstances, in all places. And so, therefore, everything that happens to you has been determined by God himself for you to experience and you to go through, not with just your soul, but with your body, because your body has your soul. And so these things are going to happen to you. You don't have to be disconnected in any way from any circumstances. You need to understand and evaluate what is going on in my life right now that God has allowed. And if you're living, he's allowed everything to go on in your life at this moment so that you would grow into the likeness, into the image of God. And if that is true, dear folks, which I believe it is, here's a point that we need to understand That these gifts that we've been given bear great responsibility. We have a great responsibility to show the world 
what Christ is like by our living this life in this world. When they see us, they are to see Christ. They are not to see someone that is sitting up high and haughty and thinking they're better than everybody else, but we're to walk in humility in this whole uh, situation, this whole life. We walk in humility because that is the foundation by which Paul is talking about. Upon this, don't think of yourself more highly, but what do you need to do? Think with sober judgment. There are things that you can do that I cannot do. There are things I can do that you cannot do. Does that make one or the other better than the other? No. We're to walk in humility and sober judgment concerning those things. We need to say, and you know, as the old expression says, call a spade a spade. This is what we need to understand. You can't do everything. You're not gifted in everything, but you're gifted in some things. And we must use those gifts. So how do we evaluate ourselves? By our self-esteem or by our identity? It's by our identity, folks. That's what we are to do. And if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, your identity is exactly all those things that I have just said. Now, here's the kicker. You must believe those things. It's not optional. If you're in Christ, it's not optional. This is truth about you. You must believe these things. If you're not, maybe you just ought to rehearse those things over and over in your mind. What are you? I am acceptable to God because he has accepted me in the beloved. I am loved by God because he sent his son for me to die for me. I am totally, totally holy Because God tells me that I have the holiness of Christ living in me. So therefore, if I walk in my identity, I am going to see the fruits of the Spirit. I am going to see that character coming out in my life. Now understand, the fruits of the Spirit are about character. The gifts of the Spirit, which we're going to talk about next week, are talking about function. We're talking about function of how you function in the body of Christ. But what you need to understand now is, first of all, first of all, get this in mind. I have to have sober thinking. And here's something very sobering. I don't deserve those gifts. And you don't either. But you got them anyway. When the grace of the Lord touched your heart and opened your heart to believe in Him, you received something that you did not deserve. What we now have to do is use them responsibly. We must think soberly, but with humility, knowing that we have been graced by God. Folks, understand, Paul understood this. He said, by the grace given to me, don't think highly of yourselves. Don't do that. But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned God has given us this measure of faith. Some have it in different proportions. But everybody has a gift. And everybody has the gifting of all the things that we've said in this identity. Let's thank God for these things. Bow with me. Father, thank you again for giving us the grace that we don't deserve. Thank you for giving to us the grace 
that allows us to see who we really are in you. Lord, thank you that where we once were in the kingdom of darkness, you have now moved us into the kingdom of your light. And Father, that this identity that we have, O oh Lord, is so precious. Lord, help us to realize what you've done for us. Help us think this way. Renew our minds. Let us walk in the glories of what you have done. Not proudly, O oh Lord, but with humility. Understanding that you have told us through your parable of Jesus that we are doing what we are doing as our duty as those who are unworthy servants. Father, we come to you just expressing that and saying, yes, Lord, we are, but you have graced us so greatly. Thank you, O Lord, for gifting each one that is a believer in Christ in this room. Lord, thank you that you've given them an identity that goes beyond their wildest imaginations and thinking, but let us, O Lord, reasonably and sanely think about these things. Help us to this week to set our mind on things above and not on things of this earth. Renew us, transform us, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.